Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. So I've been thinking today a lot about Margaret Atwood. Not only because the world outside our windows seems, in some lights, to have echoes of the dystopian worlds she writes about, but also because in the Stylist's Remarkable Women Awards this week, she has been awarded the Icon of the Year. In her obviously remote interview, uh, she said, Many kinds of artists are glamorous. For actors and singers, it's part of the job. But writers are not among them. We often feel shy or odd when out in public, since our craft is a solitary one and we are alone when writing. We put words onto paper and those words talk to others when we aren't there. It made me think about the solitary nature of how we're all going to be living for the foreseeable future and how strange for that to be a collective experience, together and apart, all at once. Fun fact, the Vintage Podcast is turning 10 years old this year. Separated from my wonderful vintage colleagues, alone in my kitchen, I started rummaging through the Vintage Podcast archives looking for solace. And I found it in two interviews from way back when. One from 2012 and one from 2016. It occurred to me that if we're looking to learn the art of solitude and connection, surely there's no one better to learn from than our authors. They have nailed the long lone road that leads to empathy and independence. The first interview I'm going to share with you is Mark Haddon, author of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, and most recently The Porpoise. He's talking about a book we published that he contributed to called Stop What You're Doing and Read This, which is an excellent book, by the way. It's one of the books I read years ago as a bookseller, and it's actually one of the books that made me want to really work at Vintage Books, in that he talks about how he believes in the power of a good novel, a term he defines as a piece of work that is humane and generous. I particularly found comfort in his description of reading as a conversation, a reader and a writer sitting opposite each other, in each other's company. I think you can write plays and films and even poems in which some of the characters are genuinely unsympathetic and for which you and the reader feel no empathy, partly because those forms are spectacle to a certain extent. You can, you can sit back and watch it from a distance, but I think all novels are a conversation. I, I tend to picture a novel as you, the writer, and the reader sitting in adjacent chairs, talking quietly to each other. You know, a novel is never declaimed or acted out or overheard. It's, it's spoken quietly to the reader. And of course, it's a really long conversation. And to make a, a long conversation work, you've really got to, you've got to like the narrator. You've got to like the person who's talking to you. They can be tart or scathing or satirical, but they've got to have an underlying warmth both towards you and, t and towards the people they're talking about. And I think you can see that in all great writers, in Dickens, in Jane Austen, in George Eliot, uh, in Tolstoy. And in fact, in War and Peace, you can see where it doesn't work because when he does start to declaim in those separate chapters about his theory of history, he kind of loses you completely. And it's, in fact, it's one of the great novels in the world where no one reads the last chapter because he's just telling you stuff you don't really want to know. I think this is particularly true of Virginia Woolf. Um, it's not just her warmth and her interest in the people she's talking about, but the speed and the ease with which she seems to flow in and out of different people's minds, in and out of different consciousnesses, in a very short period of time, often around a dining table, in and out of the minds of people talking with, with one another. And I think the way in which she does that makes you very aware of something about 
your own mind. Personally, I'm always reading Virginia Woolf and thinking, yes, 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 that, that's what it's actually like to be a human being. Not just that stream of consciousness stuff, which she does so well, the way you flick from memories of childhood to your plans for dinner to the fear of death, all within you know 30 seconds. But the way we move from a sense of loneliness to a sudden empathy with people around us, the way we feel sort of sealed in one moment, and then suddenly we dissolve and we realize that we're members of a group of people or we're members of a family and a part of us exists within all those other people in the room at the same time. The way we move from our past to our future and back into our present. I think there are other writers who have a, a wider range of characters and a wider range of situations, but I don't think there is anyone who understands and articulates what it is like to be a person from one moment to the next. So the other interview I found interesting was one that Margaret Atwood gave on stage all those years ago when she'd written her novel Hagseed. If you don't know already, Hagseed is her retelling of Shakespeare's Tempest. In the interview, Margaret talks about the theme of exile in Tempest and how she explores through her writing the contrast between freedom and confinement. I know that a lot of us feel like we're in a very strange but very necessary exile from our normal lives, in big and small ways, so I hope, like me, you find this interview refreshing, or at least a little comforting. Let me start by asking um, about the genesis of Hagseed. Of course, it's part of the Hogarth uh, Shakespeare series, but why The Tempest? Yes, why The Tempest? Uh, luckily, I was early on the list of people who were asked, so I got, I got my druthers. And that was my druther, because I had thought about it quite a bit before. I'd even written about Prospero before in my book on writing, which is called, oddly enough, A Writer on Writing. <laughs> it used to be called negotiating with the dead, but I think the D word was a uh, bridge too far for some, <laughs> some people in the publishing industry. They don't like the D word. No. No, not always. Although and it's in becoming England, the, more a writer popular, on writing yeah. is that if we say it does what it says on the tin. It does exactly what it says on the tin. So it's not about my writing and it's not about how to write. It's about who are these writers what do they think they're doing, and how are they different from other kinds of artists? And uh, the chapter in which Prospero appears is a chapter on dubious magicians, because, of course, writers are dubious magicians. They create illusions, and uh, are those illusions always benevolent? Uh, so that's what I, what I was writing about in that book. And one of the other ones in that chapter is the Wizard of Oz, who, as he says, is um, a good man, but a bad magician. He has no real magic. He's an illusionist. So what you need to ask about any writer probably is, are they a good man but a bad magician? Uh, or are they a bad man but a good magician, which is often also true. Yes, or possibly they're good at both. But Prospero in The Tempest is very ambiguous. 
and therefore the, he's been open to many different kinds of interpretations. It's also a play with a lot of unanswered questions, and it is the one play, above all, in which Shakespeare is writing a play about what he actually did all his life. He's writing a play about uh, a director-producer putting on a play with the aid of a very good special effects man called Ariel. <laughs> so that is what happens in the book. Um, a, a director-producer puts on a play by means of which he hopes to get revenge on the people who have done him dirt uh, 12 years before. How did you then light on the setting? Because it's one thing, it seems to me, to consider uh, Prospero and his magic in an essay. Mm. It's another to construct a whole story which you could read perfectly plausibly, I think, without even knowing that The Tempest existed. I, I think it helps to know that The Tempest exists, and by the end of it, you're certainly going to know that The Tempest exists, because <laughs> what they're putting <laughs> on in the are. prison is The Tempest. Uh, so how did I come to all of that? The epilogue has always been very intriguing to me, which Prospero steps out of the play, addresses the audience, but he's still Prospero. He's not saying, hello, I'm an actor playing Prospero. He is still Prospero. And that play is about guilt and, forg and forgiveness uh, and, and, and liberation, because the last three words of it are, set me free. But it's a bit puzzling in that epilogue of what is Prospero guilty? Why does he feel guilty? And from what is he being freed now that he's outside his own play? So I wanted to explore that and a number of the other unanswered questions in the play, such as who is Caliban's dad really? <laughs> if, if you don't happen to believe that Sycorax has been impregnated by the devil, who actually... <laughs> you might choose not yes. to believe. So, but you then, you then address um, this, uh, this idea of freedom and imprisonment very directly. It's, it's inevitable because uh, everybody in the Tempest at one time or another is either imprisoned uh, or being threatened with imprisonment. Um, and the only person who, who isn't really, I suppose, is Miranda because because she was too young when they fetch up on that island to realize that it's a deprivation. I was very struck um, looking back at some of the conversations that we've had before over the years. The last time we uh, talked, we spoke about The Heart Goes Last. And I happened uh, to, to note down one of my questions to you then which was uh, that when I thought about The Heart Goes Last, it really seemed to me to be about the construction of identity within society. What are some of the prisons we build for ourselves? And how do we maintain our freedom? And so it seems to me that that, that idea of imprisonment and freedom, as Peter Kemp, of course, noted in the Sunday Times, is something that's run, it runs right through your work. 
It goes certainly all the way back to alias grace, which is that in the mid-19th century, and uh, concerns of a woman who got put into a prison for her part, or possibly not her part, in a double murder that took place in 1843, a, a real one. Um, so I thought about it, a lot about it then, but I was, I was then involved in a, in a protest involving prisons in which the government before this one in Canada shut down the prison farm programs. Uh, and a lot of people are quite upset by that because one of the things that those programs taught people was empathy. Um, caring for someone other than yourself, even even if that someone is a cow. Uh, so you know, it's a, it's a beginning, <laughs> it's a start. Uh, so and and over the years, I actually have known people who have taught in prisons, and I've known people who have been in them. Uh, so it was it was interesting to me to explore the. Uh, the effect that studying literature and in particular studying Shakespeare can have on people. I think it's very useful if you've been deprived of that experience to, to be put in a position where you are imagining what it's like to be somebody else. You know, and a lot of people have gotten to a certain point in life without ever doing that. They've never had the opportunity. And there are a number of books written by people who have taught Shakespeare in prisons and say that it's quite an amazing experience. And so Felix uh, is this overthrown... Uh... So Felix was the artistic director uh, and director of, of, a, of a festival called in the book, the Makeshaweg Festival. See, I didn't know how to say it. I was waiting for you to say it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is an, an indigenous Canadian word, as a lot of place names are in, in Canada and the United States, and it means fox. Um, but there is, is the festival, uh, somewhat similar but not identical with the Stratford Shakespearean Festival. Um, and in a town somewhat similar to, but not identical with, the town of Stratford, Ontario, which ought to have, but does not have, a pub called the Imp and Pignut. <laughs> I bet Maybe it, now. I bet it will have one now. Maybe now. <laughs> so he's been deposed, uh, because he was so immersed in the magic of putting on his plays that he didn't notice that his second-in-command, who was who was handling all the boring, mundane, practical affairs like money raising and meeting with the board, uh, that this guy has, has hatched a plot and he is suddenly um, thrown out. So he goes off to brood in the, in the sticks uh, in, a, in, a, in the closest I could get to, to Prospero's cave, <laughs> Tempest. These things do exist. They were um, early dwelling, dwellings built by pioneers, and they would build them into hillsides in order con to conserve the, um, the heat. So they, there are some, and I know where one of them is, so I modeled um, Prospero's refuge on one of those. And then he gets a job at the prison, starts to teach uh, plays. He teaches the ones that he thinks are really going to go 
at first, such as Julius Caesar and, and Macbeth and Richard III, things that are easily understandable uh, by people who've had something to do with crimes, revenges, and, and gang warfare. But the Tempest, the is, Tempest is a little is bit a of a stretch. stretch. He really has to sell the Tempest because at first they don't want to do it. They think there's a fairy in it. Nobody wants to play a fairy. Uh, <laughs> nobody wants to play a young girl for pretty obvious reasons. Uh, but he finesses that. He gets them to think of Ariel not as a fairy but as a space alien. In which case, everything that Ariel does is pretty understandable flies around, you know, eats flowers. It's what aliens do. <laughs> That's okay. And when he also says that Ariel is the special effects guy, then everybody wants to be on that team. And he finesses the girl by hiring a real actress whom he has known in his previous life, and he convinces her to come in and play Miranda. And I'm not going to tell you any more about what happens. No. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. What are you reading during this strange new season? We would love to hear. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Vintage Books. We are going to continue to find new ways to pop these podcasts into your feed, so never fear. But perhaps in your absence of your ability to physically explore, why not have a little safari through our back catalogue of bookish episodes with a mug of something nice? Keep reading boldly and thinking differently. And until next time. 